Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. My name's Anoush Kellyan and I'm a staff writer and on this week's episode I'll be speaking to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about the Newark by-election and also about Labour's recent election broadcast. Sound artist and musician Alex Kolkowski will tell us about the exponential horn, a giant horn that he's reconstructed to create the perfect sound. And then Helen Lewis will be speaking to Ian Steadman about Nintendo's refusal to recognise same-sex marriage. My name is Anoush Shakelian and I am a staff writer at the New Statesman, standing in for Helen Lewis today to chat to Raphael Baer, political editor, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, um, about the week in politics. Um, so first of all, I think we're going to touch on the Newark by-election, which is coming up in June, triggered by the Tory MP Patrick Mercer standing down. Um, Raph, do you want to start? Well, with yeah, the, it's a, it's a great, everyone loves a by-election for a start, I mean, because... It gives you, it's a very self-contained opportunity to understand what real civilians actually think about politics rather than you know, talk dealing in abstract national uh, poll scores. Uh, each area has its own um, sort of colour and characteristics and also the limits on how much you can spend are different. So people can campaign very ferociously in a by-election. And obviously it comes just after the May 22nd European election. So what people will want to be seeing is, can you kip? have a surprise breakthrough or even bigger breakthrough than they've already had such that they get the MP. By the way, the answer to that is no, not in, in this constituency. Uh, can Labour show that they make real progress, um, actually you know, really threaten the Tories in what was once one of their heartland seats? Again, answer actually probably no. Um, uh, so it'll probably be a Tory hold and yet still we'll get very excited about it because that's what we do for a living. And George, um, do you want to explain why you think UKIP has fielded their particular candidate, Roger Helmer, uh, an MEP? It's a good question because Nigel Farage appeared to be em embarking on um, what, uh, what David Cameron's uh, team called a detoxification strategy after you'd had all of the, the racist, um, xenophobic, UKIP sexist, xenophobic um, candidates exposed. Um, and selecting Helmer for Newark seems to be the, the polar opposite of that. Um, my guess from speaking to some UKIP people as well is that this may be to do with internal politics. Um, and, and he is a former Conservative MEP. Um, they don't actually have that many experienced figures, but um, I think 
I think if the if he if he does win now, then it will be even worse for the Tories because yeah, I can't argue that. Um, oh well, they put up a very strong candidate. But I, I do think I agree with Raf that the Tories will probably hold the seat. And actually, the bar expectations are now so high for UKIP that this may not be as uh, as unfortunate for David Cameron as everyone thought when when the by election was called. I think George is absolutely right. I wouldn't underestimate in terms of why Helmer got selected. I wouldn't under I wouldn't overestimate the amount of control Nigel Farage and the people around him actually have over UKIP. It's you know it's, it's grown quite organically. Although he is obviously the most prominent figure, it attracts a lot of people uh, who for obvious reasons, sort of don't like political authority, think that they, the whole function of the organisation is that you can you know, bloody well speak your own mind and say what you think. Um, and so the idea of, of Farage and the people around him then imposing essentially kind of new Labour style organisational rigour to parachute the right candidate in, project the right message through personnel control is absolute anathema to everything that for a lot of people in UKIP, UKIP represents. So he simply, he has to be, he has to tread carefully with, you know, he has to let some, some of the fruitcakes and swivel-eyed loons, as they've been described by the Conservative Party, swivel their eyes and eat their fruitcake kind of um, at their own pace. Um, if he thought that it was a seat that was winnable, he might have stood there himself, Farage that is. Uh, so my suspicion, uh, as well as entirely agreeing with George's view that he just in, for internal reasons he needed to give Helmer something to keep him busy, is that if they can't win the seat, the next best thing they can do is make really sure that the whole noise, the circus, the fireworks, the media furore just carries on. Even if people are accusing them of being racist, sexist, homophobic, and they're saying, no, we're not, those things... Um, as long as everyone's talking about UKIP and UKIP is the story, their poll rating seems to go up. So, you know, it's a circus, why not feel the clown? Okay. And um, obviously all of the parties are thinking about um, their election campaigns and we've seen a very interesting, slightly bizarre, sort of black and white comedy spoof film from Labour for their, their political election broadcast, um, The Uncredible Shrinking Man about Nick Clegg. Now, George, wh why did they go so comprehensively for, for Nick Clegg in that, in that broadcast? The defectors from the Lib Dems that Labour has won are electoral gold for them. I mean, they are the one, the main reason why Labour still has a small poll lead. About 25% of those who voted Lib Dem in 2010 have, have moved to Labour. Um, and that's a, that's a bigger swing than the Conservatives got between 97 and 2010. And so... They recognise the risk, I think, that uh, as Clegg seeks to differentiate the Lib Dems more from the Conservatives, um, as the memory of uh, tuition fees fades slightly, um, that some may start to return to the Lib Dems, particularly if um, if they uh, respect and like their uh, Lib Dem councillors or, or, or their Lib Dem MPs. Um, and so they've they, they recognise the, the risk of going soft on Clegg or not going as hard as they could um, and appearing to give permission for for them to return. And this is why I mean, Clegg is obsessed with differentiation. So in his conference speech last year, he listed 16 Tory policies he's blocked and Labour want to voters to focus on those he's enabled. The bedroom tax, tripling up tuition fees, the cut in top rate tax. Uh, and the means of doing it in this case is is, is this film, which has had a... A, a pretty negative reaction. Much of it is probably worth saying from people who don't who don't like Labour in any case. So you probably wouldn't expect them to have a favourable reaction to it. Um, and it is it is negative. And so the the, the criticism from some on, on the left and, and Labour figures has been, um, you know, what's what's the positive message? But you know, experience shows that negative 
campaigning can work. It certainly helped um, to depress the Lib Dem vote throughout this parliament. Um, I think so long as it's combined with a more positive uh, message of, sort of Labour's vision of a, of a different kind of economy, a different kind of society, um, this sort of uh, crude um, but uh, but effective politics yeah, is and, necessary. And in defence of that broadcast, I mean, I, and I accept, I, I think it is true, it is a problem that um, if Labour only comes across as negative and isn't seen to have anything constructive to say about what you get if you go down the government shop and you buy a Labour government, what's the product? Was it delivered for you? It didn't say that, and that continues to be a problem. But you've got to remember, first of all, it wasn't unfunny, it was quite witty. If you're inclined to hate the Tories, as many Labour-leaning people obviously are, they, it might bring a wry smile to their faces, and ultimately they might have watched it all the way through. And given that how boring most party political broadcasts are, the fact that it might have at least engaged people for longer than four seconds is probably a win. It's also very important to remember that this isn't a general election we're going into now. I mean, we've got a year before the general election. The election in hand is the European elections. Now, the reason Westminster is getting very excited about these elections is because, first of all, UKIP adds a bit of spice to it. Also, it's four years, and the sort of muscle memory of of Parliament makes people think around now you get a general election, the government's run out of things to do because the coalition isn't working properly, there's nothing happening now. So essentially politics right now wants a general election and it is kind of treating the European elections as a dry run, as a dress rehearsal for the general election. Whereas actually it's a very different, it's a different electoral system, there's council seats up for grabs. In this specific contest, for all the reasons George said, of course it makes sense for Labour to try to make the story the total annihilation of the Lib Dems, especially if, they, if that results in their destabilisation, they go into a sort of death spiral. As, as a tactical move, it makes sense for Labour. The problem that Labour is encountering is that people are looking at their tactical move and saying, ha-ha, you've got no strategy. Obviously they deny that, you know, we'll find out. So how much can we read into the results of the local and European elections? Uh, the... The local elections, um, well, for sure, but both of them, it's a problem that no one really turns out to vote. So, you know, it, it just simply, you know, don't get enough people coming out. Uh, the people who do come out are tend to be more motivated in specific areas. So you'll get lots of people voting in the European election who hate the European Union. In a general election, that's less of a factor. Um, you know, the, it, it, the biggest unanswered question in politics at the moment is how many people who are currently saying they'll vote for UKIP will carry on doing that in the general election. If it's anything like the current level, the Tories are, I believe the technical word is completely screwed. Um, <laughs> but the Tories think that that won't happen. Um, you know, it's a data set and it's a data set that involves real people. So it, it's useful. Uh, the actual headline numbers on the day will not give you a forecast of what happens in May 2015. Okay. Thank you very much, George and Raf. Thank you. Last week, I went down to the Science Museum to speak to sound artist Alex Kolkowski about the exponential horn, a horn that he's built to create the perfect sound. I asked him why he decided to begin the project. Um, it came about um, uh, through my being a sound artist in residence at the Science Museum. And I was working with objects in the uh, museum's um, uh, sound reproduction and recording collections. Um, but previously I'd been working with, uh, a lot of my work actually came about uh, through uh, working with very early um, uh, sound recording apparatus. I'd been working with uh, wax cylinder phonographs and gramophones. I was very interested in that, in, in the sort of birth of sound recording and, and, and amplification. 
and I do um, this pro particular project came uh, it was actually through uh, working with one of the curators here called John Lippin who's a, a curator of communications and um, he told me about this uh, extraordinary loudspeaker that used to uh, hang in the Science Museum in the 1930s and uh, he had actually when he was a, he'd been working at the museum for a very long time and I think during the 80s he was they were doing a clear out and they came across uh, what looked like a, a piece of tubing. Mm. And uh, the um, curator who, who he was working with at the time recognised it as being uh, part of this legendary uh, loudspeaker from the 1930s, which had been presumed um, lost, destroyed. And then John had researched the history of this horn. And it was something that he always used to show every time he went to visit the, the collections in, in Blythe House. Uh, he'd always point out this rather, uh, this sort of, this ob object that was sort of uh, on top of these um, filing cabinets, which is this long black tube, and say, oh, this is a famous, part of a famous horn, and, and tell you about the, about the history. Um, then, but he'd actually researched it quite in, in, in quite a lot of detail. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Um, and when I'd read this research, I, I thought this would be a great idea for a, a reconstruction project. And as I mentioned earlier, I was interested in doing kind of historical recon reconstructions to do with sound. Uh, previously at the Science Museum, um, as part of my residency, we did a, a, a concert using the museum's old air-powered gramophone called the Oxetophone. And we did a reenactment of an Edwardian concert which uh, combined recordings with live music. And that also had a very large horn. It seems to me that a lot of my earlier projects involved horns. <laughs> <laughs> whether whether to record from a horn or to play back from horns, and so I mean, if people that might be familiar with the things that I do will think it perfectly natural to actually want to reconstruct <laughs> this this thing. But um, what what I found what what attracted me to it was it was actually part of the museum's history. It was actually a, a, a it had actually been commissioned uh, and designed. By the science museum, by a, by a science museum curator, and it was actually uh, um, became part of the museum's infrastructure uh, during th throughout the 1930s, um, and in fact was possibly the museum's very first sound installation. So those things that uh, really attracted me to to, to this project. Okay. And aside from um, the original horn just being an installation here, it also was used in broadcasting, wasn't it, to achieve the perfect sound? Well, um, the perfect sound, yeah. <laughs> well, it was um, as close as you could possibly get to the perfect sound maybe in, at the time. Um, it was actually conceived... I mean, Denman, Roderick Denman, who, who, who was the curator of telecommunications who commissioned Hall and designed it, he uh, previously had uh, uh, experimented with, with a, a large horn, which he had built into his house. He had a, a, a rectangular billiard room, which he converted into a loudspeaker, in, in effect. I mean, he, he put a, a giant horn on top of, this, of, the, of the roof of this... Uh, 
of this billiard room, mm. and, and the billiard room itself became an extension of the horn. And the, the horn extended some 25 feet in the air, and it was bent. Uh, it looked like a bent steeple, or they called it a sort of a, a strange Chinese pagoda. And it was actually a tourist attraction in, in South Kensington, or in Chelsea, where he lived. And um, he had uh, refurnished the room so that people had to lie down to listen to the sound. But he went to these extraordinary lengths in order to sort of achieve uh, you know, the best quality of sound possible. Um, and then he tried to, to improve on that at the Science Museum by commissioning this giant horn, which is 27 feet in length and had this seven foot square, seven foot one inch square horn mouth. And the, 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 it was a, at that time it was a kind of a new science as well, the science of, of, you know, of, of how horns propagate sound. Before that, most horns were on gramophones and phonographs and the like were, were just based on you know, instrument design, musical instrument design. There wasn't much science um, um, and theory that gone into the building of horns. But then there was a new science around uh, horns which found or then thought that, that a kind of an exponential curve was the best way of sort of handling the sound energy, of propagating the sound en energy, converting it from very high pressure, um, low, uh, low velocity at one end, the, uh, the narrow end of the horn, and to sort of uh, low, low pressure, high velocity <laughs> uh, vibrations at the mouth. Uh, uh, and they found that this, this exponential curve was the best way of, of, of managing or transforming that sound, um, which was actually discredited a bit later because they found other shapes were actually much much better. But the but it was still um, um, uh, widely uh, uh, thought as being the best um, means of the best horn design of a of a of a horn loudspeaker. Um, but the problem was that it had to be, in order to reproduce the very low frequencies, it had to be very, very long. Hence, you know, it was, it was long for a particular reason. Mm. I mean, it was, it was basically, you know, it had to be that length and, and the horn had to be, you know, the horn mouth had to be that, uh, those dimensions in order to reproduce uh, frequencies uh, as low as about 32 hertz. But I think for the, for the people at the time, it must have been extraordinary to hear this. I mean, if, you, if anyone's at all familiar with the sort of loudspeakers of the 1930s, and it, I mean, to hear something like this would have been really, really ex extraordinary. It would have been absolutely amazing, I think, because it, you, you, it could achieve such low, you know, such a fantastic bass, for instance, but also had a, uh, a, a almost like a three-dimensional effect. And that's what some people commented at the time when they went to his home and when they were lying down listening to music from above. There's an extraordinary... <laughs> 3D sound effect, you know, from this giant mono speaker. So all of these things, it was, uh, um, were, would, would have been absolutely, were extraordinary for the time. And you still, I mean, when we tested it in, in August, and I was astonished actually by, by the sound quality. I'm joined by our tech writer Ian Stedman to talk about Nintendo's problem with gay gamers. So Ian, tell me what's happened. Um, there is this Nintendo game on the 3DS handheld called Tomodachi Life, 
which is kind of like The Sims. You know, you have a character called a me. Um, you live your life on this little island. You're you're walking around. You make friends with other characters. You play games and you earn money and all kinds of that kind of thing. But you have relationships. It's one of those games where you build relationships with um, other players. And part of that is you can, like The Sims, get married, fall in love and get married with other characters and have children and all that kind of stuff. And it's all lovely. But you can't do it if uh, you want to get same-sex married. Um, which has caused a little bit of consternation amongst say um, amongst the LGBT community in North America and Europe. So just to clarify, it's not it wouldn't affect any storylines or anything like that. It would it's just ah okay. Yeah, there are certain parts of the game that you can only unlock after you've got married to another character. Uh, this is part of the critique. There's this guy called Tay Marini. Um, he's a gay man living in Arizona who made this uh, video explaining why he felt so let down by Nintendo. Uh, he wanted to marry. It, his real life fiance is in game me, but he realised the only way to do that would be to uh, have a have a virtual sex change operation to change his me to a woman or his fiance's one to a woman, um, and he didn't want to do that. He was like, "Why can't I just get married to my fiance's me?" Understandably, because then we can have kids, we can get a bigger house, we can uh, move to a different island. There's all this uh, stuff that comes it's much unlocked. like real life. It's much like real life, where you get these extra legal privileges. Yeah. Um, uh, From a Nintendo's point of view, though, how would it be just literally a case of changing a few pronouns and unlocking a few avatars, or would or, or would they be able to defend this on the basis that you'd have to kind of completely rewrite the game from scratch? Their, their defense has been that um, it's not in the original code in the Japanese version. They don't have same-sex marriage in Japan. It's worth saying, and it's quite a conservative culture compared to North America and Europe in that regard. Um, but they've said that because they've localized they localized the game to North America and Europe, but it's not going to be included in that. Um, it's worth saying that Marini is playing the Japanese version of the game. It's not out till June in North America or Europe. So there is still theoretically time to like change it, although it might be too late. And you can also patch games these days after they come out, so that's, that's something that could happen. But instead, N Nintendo's words were just that they didn't want to offer any kind of social commentary with the game. Which is classic, because the idea that you make any kind of neutral decision... Yeah, the choice of not choosing is in itself a choice. Um, so uh, that, this is angered quite a lot of people. There was already a, quite a large uh, social media campaign called Me Quality, uh, which was having a lot of people tweeting that and stuff. And now it's much bigger, because um, Nintendo have actually responded to it and, and in the negative. And what seems like quite... Like, it's an open goal. They could quite easily change it, surely. And they've said no. Um... And, and, yeah. But to be positive for a moment, can you think of games that have interesting attitudes or positive depictions of homosexuality or allow you... Final Fantasy Nine has a I don't in want it? to get... I'm... Skyrim has gay marriages in it. Yeah, well, yeah. Mass Effect. Um, yeah, you Mass can Effect, famously. You be whatever gender you want as, as Commander Shepard and then have relationships with various Fallout. crew members. And that I think that's actually... Done. The way that Mass Effect yeah. does it, I think, is very good because you have straight characters in there who will only relate to you if you're one character. But and you also have a race that doesn't basically <laughs> yeah. doesn't really care. Yeah. Um the Asari who are just you know, who just like people who aren't other Asari. Yeah, exactly. It turns out. Um And Sims Sims three. Does. And Fable as well. Yeah. I had a lot of wives in Fable. Oh yeah, I remember <laughs> Yeah. I only played Fable One and I remember marrying and killing my wives. That was a I was a terrible teenager in, in retrospect in that regard. Um, Sims 3, they actually introduced gay marriage after, I mean, it was something that was so frequently 
modded into the game by players in Sims 1 and 2 that they just had to bring it in eventually. It was it was just pointless not to. I think things like these often reveal how slowly, along a lot of different axes, the game industry changes. Because I was yeah. thinking again last night about Mass Effect. Um, randomly thinking about Joker, the character in there, who is the pilot of the, the ship that you pilot, and is revealed to be... Uh, he has brittle bone disease, I think, and actually yeah. you only ever see him sitting down, and then you realise that if he, he would be in a wheelchair. Yeah. And it suddenly reminded me that this is something that the, the games industry has not even no. touched in an, in, in an interesting way. Well, they've they've probably touched it better than a rep, um, representation of ethnic minority lead characters, for instance, or disabled lead characters. Yeah. I mean, it's it's uh, as slim pickings as it is for the LGBT community. It's, they're still even better off than those well, other it's, ones. It's more yeah. okay. It's hopefully in the case of changing a few pronouns on existing things or like yeah. Whereas I think we're still a really long way away from. Having a, a, a kind of even a crew on it on a ship or something like that in a game that is in any way kind of interesting diverse section yeah. of society. There probably is some really interesting indie game out there. In which case, if you're listening and you can think of one, do let us know. But I don't know of any that that are like that. You think it would be something that would be quite good for indie gaming? Yeah, well, I mean, there are fantastic. There's um, there's Dysphoria, for example, which is a game that um, explores trans issues. Um, and there are, you know, there are. That's one of the beautiful things about the rise of kind of indie games is yeah. it has allowed people from particular communities to make games that reflect their experiences. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and the AAA title is still unfortunately wedded to a white male American beefcake. Saving a woman. Saving um, a little yeah. lady in some form <laughs> or another of whatever age or clothing um, rations yes. that she gets. Well, we'll keep an eye on that one, I think, maybe, uh, and come back to it. Thank you very much, Ian. Thanks. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast, and you can find us weekly at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.